Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church Sermon Cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church Elder, Greg Lynch. Let's begin with the word of prayer this morning, this evening. Seems like morning. Our Father, thank You for the opportunity once again to open Your Word. It's a precious Word that sustains us, gives us hope, instructs us in the way of righteousness, enables us to know You in a very personal way. We ask that Your Spirit might guide us as we consider this message this evening, that you would be pleased to instruct us and edify us in really important spiritual ways. We thank you for loving us, giving us eternal life through your Son's death on the cross on our behalf. Thank you for what you'll accomplish this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. This evening's uh, message title is called The Requirement of Holiness. The Requirement of Holiness. Last Sunday, I broached the topic of the last days because I wanted to examine, however briefly, the increasingly difficult conditions we see in today's world, especially the present moral and spiritual climate in the United States. I also mentioned how we needed to learn how we ought to live as Christians in the light of what's going on. This week, in preparation for tonight's message, I asked the Lord what I should talk to you about. As I thought and prayed, I came to believe that I should explore more fully the personal lessons that the Lord has been bringing to my attention in recent times. It made sense to talk about something fresh in my mind. Starting in June of this year, I began revisiting the Old Testament in order to refresh my memory about all its rich content. At present, I'm plowing through the book of Leviticus. And I'm noticing once again the topic that God wanted to stress most vividly to His ancient people Israel, the requirement to maintain holiness in their response to Himself as the Holy One. Having this thought in mind, I decided to bring a message on that subject from the book of 1 Peter. So if you turn there, 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll get started with our examination of this passage of Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 1. Before we consider the verse, I'd like to emphasize this, this evening, which would be verses 13 through 16. Let's read its immediate context, starting with verse 10. 1 Peter 1, verse 10. And we'll be reading 
through verse 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Notice, first of all, the word that immediately stands out in verse 10, salvation. Peter, of course, had been discussing that doctrine from the beginning of his epistle. I think we're all very familiar with that wonderfully rich section from verses 3 through 9 in chapter 1, where the apostle weaves together so many truths related to our salvation that they take our breath away. God's great mercy being born again to a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, our imperishable, undefiled, and permanent inheritance reserved in heaven for us, and the Lord's protection and preservation of us throughout our lives until He brings us to glory. In verse 10, Peter mentions how Old Testament prophets spoke of, quote, the grace that would come to you, that is, to those reading the Apostle's letter. He points out in verse 12 that God revealed to these prophets that they were not serving themselves, but Peter's audience, people who heard the Spirit-inspired gospel from faithful preachers who predicted the sufferings of Christ, and the glories to follow. Now when we come to verse 13, we see the telltale word, therefore, beginning of verse 13. This word always leads readers to understand that the writer's conclusion to a matter will follow immediately. When you see therefore, you always ask, what's it there for? Peter launches out into how God wants his readers to respond to what they've heard and what they've received. That is, the glorious truths found in this prophesied gospel. I'd like for us to consider five points which are based off five imperatival clauses found in verses 13 through 16. The first is... Prepare your minds for action, in verse 13. Second is keep sober in spirit. The third, fix your hope completely. Fourth, in verse 14, do not be conformed to former lusts. And five, be holy yourselves also, in verses 15 and 16. Let's first look at the first clause. Literally, the text reads, gird up the loins of your mind. 
MacArthur writes that this expression refers to the ancient practice of gathering up your robes when you had to move quickly at a moment's notice. He understands it metaphorically as meaning that you have to pull in all the loose ends in your thinking. Peter's audience expected to experience ultimate sanctification in a glorious future. So the apostle exhorts them to be disciplined in your thinking in their trial-filled present, which he referred to earlier in this chapter. I believe it was in verse 6, talking about trials that, were, that they were experiencing. Be disciplined in your thinking while you're going through trials. That's quite a task. All of us struggle to maintain discipline and focus. Our trials pull us in different directions so much of the time that oftentimes we surrender to the inevitable whatever. We allow the world to dictate to us what we should do and how we must think. This attitude wrecks havoc or wreaks havoc with the progress of our sanctification. What might you consider to be a loose end in your thinking that you need to pull in? Perhaps one of those loose ends might be time management. Let me just mention a few ideas and then move on to the next point. The parable of the minas, or minas, I don't know how to pronounce that one, discusses what three men do with the opportunities life afforded them. Two of the servants do well with the use of their mina, and they receive a reward and commendation. However, the third slave's fear of the master causes him to do nothing with his mina, which represents, of course, his life. He ends up with nothing. He did nothing, and so he received nothing. Such seems to be the case with many professing Christians. They waste their time on many worldly pleasures. Why? Because they have not taken the time to develop an eternal perspective toward their lives. Sadly, they devote little time to things that matter the most. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Treat the world like fire. Don't try to get as close to it as you can without getting burned. Stay away from it as far as possible so that you do not even feel its heat. The Apostle John commanded the believers in one of his epistles, Do not love the world nor the things of the world, the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life are not from the Father, but from the world. That is one way to manage your time correctly. If you separate from the world and spend more time seeking the kingdom of God. The second imperatival clause is keep sober in spirit. Being sober here does not mean don't get drunk, though avoiding alcoholic drunkenness should go without saying. 
It means having a serious attitude or approach toward life. Now listen carefully to these additional imperatives which describe a sober spirit. Be steadfast and self-controlled. Think clearly and have moral decisiveness. Put your priorities in order and stick with them. You have to come up with priorities. It takes a little time to think through what your priorities should be. But once you have them, you should stick with them, not keep on going back on them. Reject the things that the world values. Reevaluate your ambitions. What are some of your ambitions? Are they the right ones? Are the ones that God wants you to have? I think Paul wrote someplace about what your ambition should be. I think it was in 2 Corinthians 5. Let's turn there for just a brief moment. 2 Corinthians 5. Verse 9 says, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And then we come down to verse 10, where it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. So if our ambition is to be pleasing to Him, more than likely that our judgment, our time before the judgment seat will be one of pleasure rather than pain. Consider your calling with all earnestness. Remind yourself that God has set you apart for His glory and for His use. You are not your own, but have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit. I paraphrase the third imperatival clause. Fix your hope completely upon the grace that Jesus will bring to you when he comes for his church at the rapture. That's in verse 13b. It says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I interpret revelation of Jesus Christ to to be referring to the uh, rapture of the church. I'd like you to see verses that will speak to this point. Turn to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. They read, Beloved, Now we are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, the revelation of Jesus Christ, when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is is pure. This hope fixed on Him has a sanctifying effect upon our lives. If we are 
our eyes are fixed on Jesus, He will make us more and more like Himself, conform to the image of Christ. Fix your hope completely upon the grace that Jesus will bring to you. Now, of this grace, MacArthur writes, Christ's ministry of glorifying Christians will be the culmination of the grace that He initiated at salvation. We should live unreservedly for the future, anticipating this glorious event. We should allow the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ, and your role in the millennium to dictate your present activities. Did you know that the way we act now, the way we behave now will, in, will determine our role in the millennium? If we are unfaithful now, we will not have as great a role in the millennium as we would if we obeyed Christ. All of us need this reminder. I paraphrase the oft-quoted words of Jim Elliot. Jim Elliot, for those of you who are not familiar with that name, was a missionary many years ago who was martyred by, I believe, the, the Aka Indians. And his uh, words were quoted. This is just a uh, paraphrase where he said, Our life will soon be past. Only what we do for Christ's glory will last for all eternity. We have to keep those words in mind and let them sink into our hearts. Only things that will last for eternity are, are things that we do for Christ's glory. Fixing our hope completely upon what He will accomplish when He comes back. Now the fourth imperatival clause calls upon, or Paul, or Peter calls upon his readers to behave as obedient children of God who must not allow the world to press them into its lifestyle mold. Verse 14, okay, back in First Peter, chapter 1, verse 14, the early part of that verse, Peter writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts. Do not be conformed to the former lusts. We must not let the world press us into its lifestyle. This instruction sounds reminiscent of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which many of us can probably quote. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In verse 2 especially, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. The second part of that verse, verse 13, Paul calls upon his, his readers to reject the lifestyle 
in which they ignorantly existed while they were unregenerate. Take a look back at verse 14b. It says, Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. We lived ignorantly as unbelievers. And Peter's saying, Don't go back to being the way that you were before. Do not be conformed to the world's lusts. Now, again, Paul gives the same warning. He speaks about these things in Ephesians chapter 4, where he says, Walk no longer just as Gentiles also walk in the futility or vanity of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded or being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness or blindness of their heart. Don't be like that. Paul saying, and Peter saying, both of them are consistent with this understanding that as believers we should be different. We should not live as the unbelievers do in the world. We should have a totally different perspective toward this life. Instead of living that way, they should pattern their lives after the holiness of the one who called them to salvation as we read in verses 15 and 16 back in 1 Peter 1. It says, Do not be conformed, verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Once more, Paul says the very same thing. In Romans 6, verses 11 through 13, he says, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The word consider there, you can translate that as count it to be true. I think in other translations it says reckon, but we don't really know what reckon means anymore. So consider it to be true that you are dead to sin because of your salvation, but your life to God in Christ Jesus. Paul continues by saying, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on, do not continue to go on. In other words, stop presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present or yield yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. That is our responsibility, to stop presenting our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but yield our bodies to do what God wants us to do, righteousness. Let's just focus for a very short period of time a little bit more on the fifth imperatible clause. Be holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, again rereading it, it says, but like the Holy One, notice how many times the word holy is used. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written... You shall be holy, 
for I am holy. Holiness defines the Christian's new nature and his conduct in contrast with his pre-Christian lifestyle. The Apostle Peter is here exhorting Christians to make progress in their sanctification or in their holiness. Why? Because it is written. Because God says so. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is the essence of the one who called you to salvation. And God commands you to be like him, to imitate him. Let's take a brief look at this divine attribute, first of all, in the Old Testament. The threefold repetition of the Hebrew word kadosh in Isaiah 6.3, this is the time when the prophet saw the Lord on his holy throne. This may very well refer to God's triune personality. He says, holy, holy, holy. I'll be referring to, in a veiled kind of way, to God's trinity. And it may also emphasize, as MacArthur suggests, his separateness from and independence of his fallen creatures. The, the Lord is wholly other. That's with the W, not with the one H. W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy. In other words, completely, totally other than what we are. He is called the Holy One of Israel 30 times in the book of Isaiah. The high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says, I dwell in a high and holy place. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Now when we turn to the New Testament, the writer of the book of Hebrews speaks of our great high priest, Jesus, as holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. When God the Son took on human nature, it was holy, sinless, and perfect. Therefore, he was not able to sin. He was without sin while on earth, and he will remain without sin throughout eternity. The Gospel of John says that the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit to indwell his church and to empower his people to live a life set apart, which is another word for being holy, sanctified. To live a life set apart for his service and for his glory. The Spirit authored his holy word of truth so that we might be sanctified in truth. Jesus petitioned his Father in John 17, 17, sanctify them, set them apart in truth, in the truth. Thy word is truth. As born-again saints, we have God's seed abiding in us, the new nature. We cannot habitually sin. We have been permanently transformed into a new creation in Christ. We are new creatures, totally new. God wants us, his people, to share in his holiness. Believers should reflect 
the character of the Holy One of Israel. And our holy behavior is based off, the, off His character as being holy. In verse 15 in chapter 1 of Peter, there's a word that indicates that this aspect of sanctification to which Peter refers is neither the positional kind, that is, it does not refer to the act of God upon each one of us when we initially trusted in Christ, in Christ Jesus as our Savior, nor does it point to ultimate sanctification, what will transpire when we receive our resurrection body. The word is behavior. This word obviously pertains to the working out of our salvation in this life. Our working out of our salvation in this life. In other words, it signals the progressive aspect of our sanctification. So there's positional on one end, there's ultimate on the other end, and in the middle is progressive sanctification. That's what's happening right now in each one of our lives. As opposed to justification, being declared righteous by, by God, which is a monergistic operation of the Holy Spirit and life of the believer, progressive sanctification is synergistic. It's a joint venture throughout our life. You and the Lord working together. It's not one, it's not the other, it's both of us working together just to become more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not talking about work salvation. It's just talking about our responsibility as believers to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our sanctification. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He is the one that's providing the energy, the, the power to live the Christian life, but we also have responsibility to yield to Him. And what is this good pleasure that Paul is talking about? In 1 Peter 2, verse 5, Peter speaks of believers as living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, later on in that second chapter, he writes that we are, quote, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. So we conclude, can conclude from this that God has chosen us to worship Him in holiness, and to tell our fellow men about His great and glorious gospel. I leave you with one final comment, this one coming from the godly Puritan Stephen Charnock. Being holy, he says, is the prime way of honoring God. We do not so glorify God by elevated admirations, or eloquent expressions, 
or pompous services of Him, as when we aspire to a conversing with Him with unstained spirits and live to Him in living like Him. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, just this brief look at this attribute, attribute of God is, um, is overwhelming if we truly meditate upon it. This is the way that you want us to be. You have called us out of the world, out of the, as Augustine says, the mass of perdition. You have called us out of this world. You have set us apart for yourself. We belong to you. The high and holy calling. You just have to believe it. You've done a marvelous work in the lives of all those who are truly born again. You've given us a new nature. You've given us a desire to learn more of you by walking with you every day, studying your word so that we know what you expect of us, to know how we ought to live in light of eternity. We pray, Father, that you would help us to have a sober spirit, a serious attitude, perspective toward our present life. Not to waste our time on things that are of no value, things that the world values, but we shouldn't because we are new creatures in Christ. We pray that you would transform us from day to day. Help us to look to Christ, look to the Spirit's work in our lives. Be faithful to study, meditate upon your word each day that we might be more equipped, better equipped to serve you. Give us opportunities this week to speak a word for you to those who are walking in darkness, who are ignorant of the spiritual truth that we find in your word. Be pleased to save people in our families, in our neighborhood. Use us as you will to bring about the salvation of many people. We praise you for your goodness, your grace toward each one of us. As we read this morning, great is your faithfulness. We ask thou as we join our hearts in prayer over various ideas or 
parts of our ministry, that you would be pleased to work through us, bring about your will. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of High Point Baptist Church elder Greg Lynch on the High Point Baptist Church sermon cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the SermonCast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, all rights reserved.